0: Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, meet me in Mark chapter three. Mark chapter three, verse one through six is where we will be in God's word together. And while you're turning there, allow me to express a debt of gratitude to Dr. Aiken and and Southeastern uh, for having me. It's surreal uh, to be here. I have been blessed immeasurably uh, by the ministry of this institution over the years as men have stood in this very spot. Uh, And I am honored and and humbled uh, to be able to occupy this spot in this moment. So thank you for that trust. I would say more, but I'm on the clock. So let's get to God's word. Uh, Mark chapter 3 is an interesting chapter. If I, if I had to put a label or a word on it, I would probably put the word misunderstanding. Uh, throughout the chapter, and really throughout the entire gospel, uh, over and over again, people are misunderstanding who Jesus is, and what he came to earth to do. In this chapter, he's been called uh, demon-possessed, he's been called crazy, he's been called a great healer, and of course, he's been called a blasphemer. And everyone believes they're right. Uh, And foremost among those who misunderstand Jesus is the Pharisees. And as I see the Pharisees in our passage this morning, I feel a great deal of sober-mindedness because I often take for granted that I understand who Jesus is. I have degrees to prove I understand who Jesus is. But the Pharisees are a cautionary tale of the disparity that can exist between studying God and actually knowing God. In these six verses, we get to see the danger of a hard heart in the presence of God. So hear now the word of the Lord from Mark chapter three, verse one through six. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to him, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, what a great honor it is to know you, to serve you. Lord, I ask that in this moment, that as I speak to the ear, you would speak to the heart and transform lives. Lord, may the words of my mouth in the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight O oh, lord my rock and my redeemer in jesus name amen a few years ago i came across an interesting article uh, of an interview of this dance team in the uk uh, mark smith is the leader of this dance ensemble and As he was being interviewed, he was sharing about how excited he was about all the wide array of genres that his team dances to, from ballet to hip-hop. They sell out shows across the UK, but what was fascinating about the article was that this article was, was about an interview about this team that was actually a deaf dance ensemble. That's right. Mark gathers these professional dancers, and not a single one of them can hear a thing. Now, if you're like me, a very natural question arises. If they're deaf, how do they dance to music? It's a very good question, and that question certainly came up during the interview. Mark says that when they gather together to do their routine, they dance barefoot, and so they feel the vibrations in the floor, and they stay in step with the music. And if ever they're struggling to stay in step with the music, they'll, they'll run to the piano or the, or the speaker, And they'll hug the piano and and feel the beat of the music and they'll get it down into their bodies and then they'll run back to the dance floor and dance this choreography and try to stay in step with each other and the music. And if they get struggling again, they'll run back to the piano and feel the piano and get the beat down into their bodies and do this back and forth as they need. In a world where they would say they have a handicap, This dance team has figured out how to stay in step with the music. Sometimes we all need help staying in step with the music. As believers, we struggle with a handicap. We, We struggle to really stay in step with the music of the gospel. Sin has thrown off our ability to hear. It has deafened us, and we do not dance as we should. What I love about God is that the Lord, by his grace and his love, he continues to play the melodies and allows us to wrestle through and struggle for staying in step and staying on the beat. And what I love about the word of God is that over and over again, we see examples within the scriptures of people that keep falling short and keep falling out of step and keep missing the beat, but the Lord never gives. Gives up on any of us. But the question is, will we respond to the invitation to dance? Or are we convinced of our own ability to figure things out? Are we convinced of our own religious sufficiency? In Mark chapter 3, we see one of many examples of a group of men that preferred their religious sufficiency, their self-righteousness. There was no more frustrating an opponent than the Pharisees. But you know, the, the more I read about the Pharisees, the, the more, longer I live, the longer I do ministry, the more I actually resonate with the Pharisees. I mean, it, it might sound strange, but uh, the, the, it, I just didn't understand these Pharisees. I mean, early on when I started reading the Bible, they just seemed like random villains. I mean, we, we don't see them in the Old Testament. There's not much of an introduction to them in the New Testament. And we see immediately they're opposing Jesus, which is a big no-no in Sunday school lessons, right? So, so you, you just instantly don't like the Pharisees. You don't want to be like the Pharisees. You don't hear a sermon about the Pharisees being a good example to follow. But then I learned some of the background of Pharisees. I learned why they formed. They formed as a reaction to constant pressure to religious ideologies that were against the law of God. From Persians to Greeks to Romans, there was constant pressure to conform to idolatry and and blasphemy. Uh, And these Pharisees, these separate ones, as the word's called, they rose up to protect the people of God, to resist bad teaching, and to help the Jewish community live in this constant pressure in this society in an oppressive way. Society. And you can respect that, right? I mean, you respect people that uh, protect good theology and, and resist anti biblical teaching, right? So, what happened? Why, when we get to the New Testament, do we see constant battle between the Pharisees, the servants of God, and Jesus, the Son of God. That should be a a match made in heaven. But it wasn't. See, the issue was that Jesus was was quite a troublemaker. I mean, he, he comes on the scene, and immediately he is disrupting the religious system. I mean, this religious system that these people have relied on for years, it's been in place for years, generations have come to count on this religious system, and Jesus comes along, and he doesn't seem to respect any of it. I mean, it doesn't even take three chapters for him to get on the bad side of the Pharisees. I mean, you look in chapter 2, and and you see, according to the Pharisees, in verse 7, he's blaspheming. In verse 14, he's colluding with sinners. In verse 18, he's rebelling against religious customs. In verse 24, which is a big no-no, he's breaking the Sabbath. So by the time we get to chapter 3, the Pharisees are not on the fence anymore about how to feel about Jesus. This guy is a threat to our way of life. He's got to go. And so when we come into chapter 3, They're trying to figure out how to get rid of this troublemaker. And they find their opportunity with the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a big theological topic. There was a tension around the Sabbath because when you read the Old Testament scriptures, the Sabbath is held up as incredibly sacred, I mean the Lord modeled it in Genesis 2 he etched it in stone in the 10 commandments and even in Exodus 31 he says to the people above all you shall keep my sabbaths that's a big statement but the tension is, is that while the sabbath being held up as sacred there's not a whole lot of detail about how to keep it it just says cease from working That's it, it's not very concrete. So what happens when well-meaning religious people, they come and they, they want to do good, they want to live right, but it's not concrete? Of course, they make a rule. You gotta have rules when you're religious because how will I know if I'm good enough? You got to have rules when something is abstract and concrete because we might be in danger of the slippery slope. We got to protect people from the slippery slope. Nuance is very threatening. So let's make a rule so that we can be clear about what it means to be good. And also I can police other people that aren't as good as me. So the mantra of the religious is do better, do better, do better. Let's make a rule. So the Pharisees, in this gap between the sacred and the concrete, they make hundreds of rules about the Sabbath with so much detail, addressing all kinds of things, counting how many steps you can take, how heavy something can be that you can pick up, restrictions on eating, restrictions on bathing. I mean, there's so much. And they do all this to be clear about what it means to keep the Sabbath. And so they make rule after rule after rule, hoping that they will rule out sin. But unfortunately, they misunderstand the nature of the heart. That rules don't actually cure sin. They restrain it, they restrict it, but they don't actually cure it. It needs a a deeper change. It reminds me of a story I heard by Dr. Tony Evans some time ago. He tells a story of a man that went to the doctor, and this man was in excruciating pain all over his body. So he went to the doctor and said, Doc, please, I need your help. Everywhere that I touch, feels so much pain. From the top of my head to the tips of my toes, I need your help from this pain. So the doctor said, okay, well, let me see what you're talking about. So So he touches his head and says, ouch. And he touches his chest and says, ooh. And he touches his leg, and he winces in pain, and he reaches down and touches his toes, and he fills his eyes with tears. He's about to topple over, and the doctor shakes his head and looks at him and says, you knucklehead, you have a dislocated finger. The problem was, the man understood that there was pain, but he didn't understand the real source of the pain. The Pharisees, they had rule after rule trying to get rid of sin, but they didn't actually address the source, the issue, the deeper issue, the nature of the heart. And so they see Jesus, and he's a rule breaker. He's providing nuance in chapter 2, verse 23 through 28. So he's got to go. And so we get to verse 1 in chapter 3, and Jesus enters the synagogue. The parallel story in Luke chapter 6 lets us know that he begins teaching in the synagogue. And the Pharisees were there too, but they weren't there to worship. No, they weren't there to hear the word of God. Verse 2 lets us know that they were there to trap Jesus which begins a series of ironies unfolding within this story because I'm pretty sure plotting to kill someone on the Sabbath is not actually keeping the Sabbath. But they're not worried about that. Jesus is the problem, so we got to deal with that. And again, we see in the loop parallel that Jesus knows their thoughts. And so he decides to capitalize on the moment. And he does something very unusual in the Gospels. This account is the only instance in all the Gospel of Mark, and one of the only few instances in all the Gospels that Jesus performs a miracle unprompted and unapproached. There's a man in this synagogue, and he comes in and he's just trying to live his life. He's just trying to mind his own business, and do what he can to do things to keep faithful to the Lord. So he comes to the synagogue that day and just trying to hear words. He has no idea that he's a pawn in this pharisaical scheme until we get to verse three, when Jesus says, come here. And I don't wanna speak where the text is silent, but I'm very, I just, I'm curious about what went through his head. When Jesus, the preacher of the hour, just all of a sudden in the middle of service says, hey, hey, you that's trying to hide, come here. Oh, if I had time, I'd talk about even when we think we're hidden, Jesus still sees us. Even when we think we're overlooked, Jesus still sees us. We don't know what went through the man's head. Was he terrified? Was he confused? Was was he expectant and hopeful? Did, Did he know who Jesus was? Did he know what he could do? We don't know. All we know is that Jesus is going to use this man and his withered hand to put on display two things, his glory and the hard hearts of the Pharisees. We see these both begin to emerge in verse 4 when Jesus looks at the Pharisees and asks the question, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life, or to kill? And Jesus asks this question strategically. I mean, first off, the the Pharisees in chapter 224 use the same, uh, similar language when they tried to accuse Jesus. But also, Jesus is trying to expose them. Because you you see, according to the interpretive laws of the Jewish tradition, it would write out these rules, right? And one of the rules was, when life is in danger, whenever there is doubt whether life is in danger, this overrides the Sabbath. So according to Jewish tradition, if someone's life was in danger and under threat, then you could break the Sabbath and you're okay. So the trap that they're trying to set for Jesus is, is he going to heal a non-life-threatening issue? Because then we'll get him. But the problem is, is that they're trying to stand on a debate that's not actually the law of God. The law of God doesn't say anything about life-threatening versus non-life-threatening. And so when Jesus starts to question, is it lawful, he's already calling them out because they know they're not standing on God's law. It's a foreshadowing to what Jesus says in Mark 7, 8, that they leave the commands of God for the traditions of men. They're trying to trap Jesus with a tradition keep our tradition." And they know they can't say that out loud. They want to blend tradition and the law. And I don't know what went through their minds, but for Jesus to use the words that he did, I I think of Deuteronomy 30, where the Lord calls out his people and calls them to repentance from their heart. And he says things like in verse 15, "'See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live. I can imagine they they thought of Isaiah 1 or Isaiah 58. I mean, these men memorized whole books of the Bible, and I imagine they could think of Isaiah 1, where, where the Lord actually says to Judah in their rebellion to bring him no more Sabbaths. No more offerings, no more prayers, because they refuse to remove the evil in their hearts. So he says to them in one seventeen: learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression. Judah was fine with keeping the Sabbath as long as they didn't have to actually live for God. And so it is with the Pharisees. And Jesus will make this clear later on in Matthew chapter 23 when he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Is it lawful? to do good? Is it lawful to save life? Of course it is. That's never an exception, unless you get into the realm of tradition. But they wouldn't kill Jesus over tradition, would they? Certainly they would have the mindset to let go of tradition. The irony of this exchange is that uh, there's actually no Jewish tradition, interpretive law about what to do with miraculous healing, <laughs> right? Because nobody could do that. <laughs> uh, but Jesus is about to miraculously heal him. Uh, but do you think they care about that technicality? Nope. They refuse to repent. They refuse to surrender to the word of God. They They refuse to soften their heart to the suffering and affliction of this man. They would rather set him up as a theological issue to fight over than a neighbor in need to love. And so we see Jesus in verse 5. And if you let it, this verse can send chills down your back because this verse is very unique in all the Gospel. Nowhere else in the Gospel of Mark do we see Mark actually identify the emotions of Jesus. He's angry and he's grieved. Now was he angry and grieved in other places in the Gospels? Of course, but for Mark, the the gospel writer, the gospel that's fast-paced, the gospel that's intentionally brief, Mark takes the time to name anger and grief in Jesus. Can you imagine the look on Jesus' face as he looked around at these men? If anyone should respond with worship, if anyone should respond with rejoicing over someone's suffering being gone, it should be these men. But the text says they have a hardness of heart. And it angers and grieves the Lord. This hardness of heart is a semantic idiom which means a stubbornness of will. And that activates a sobered-mindedness in me. (laughs) Because I would like to say that I would never respond to Jesus like this. I would like to say that that I never respond with my own efforts and my own perspectives and my own rules. But if I'm honest, I'm guilty. If I'm honest, I, I still struggle with seeing the glory of God and rejoicing. I was confronted with this when i was in seminary i was in seminary i was uh, taking hebrew and i had a hebrew exam coming and i i just couldn't get it i mean greek is hard but hebrew was something else i just could not understand these dots and squiggles and so i'm studying for hours and hours and hours trying to understand and i just couldn't get it and so eventually i just gave up went to bed and the day of the exam came and i I was going to decide to cram, do some last minute cramming, but instead I decided to to go to chapel, try to get myself refocused. And a professor was preaching that morning, and I don't remember much from his message, but uh, I I remember uh, he asking this very pointed question Did you come to seminary to learn better Christ dependency or to learn better self sufficiency? He asked those of us in the chapel, seminary students, did you come to seminary to learn better Christ dependency or to learn better self-sufficiency? And that was so convicting for me. Because here I was in this institution, I'm trying to learn all these deep biblical and theological truths, and I'm learning more and more about God. But as I'm learning and as I'm studying, I'm seeing that I keep relying on myself, my own abilities, my own achievements, my own reputation. And I would love to say I've been delivered, but I still feel it. Prone to wander, God, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I'm so tempted to self righteousness all the time. And I think we underestimate how much that angers and grieves the Lord. I think we underestimate how much that actually deafens us the gospel because where self-righteousness says do better do better the gospel says it is done dance to that but I don't take the time to hear it and so it was with these pharisees verse 6 we see the story conclude And it's in verse 6 that we really see the Pharisees' hearts. Verse 5, Jesus heals the man. And and honestly, I feel like he's trying to be funny. Because if you look at it, uh, in all this controversy about what to do and not to do on the Sabbath, uh, healing, and Jesus actually doesn't lift a finger to heal this man. But do you think the Pharisees care about that? No. Do you think they're excited that the man is healed? No. All this religious language, all this trying to prop up theological ideas, but then we see their real heart. They don't really care about the things of God. And verse 6 shows us what they really want. And again, we see the irony in verse 6 when Mark says immediately they went to the Herodians. Because if they did it immediately, that means that they went on the Sabbath to go plan an assassination, which reinforces that they don't really care about the Sabbath. They don't really care about the law. They don't really care about the things of God. So what do they care about? We see it when they go to the Herodians. It's a big deal that they're going to the Herodians because the Herodians were the opposite of everything that the Pharisees stood for. If the Pharisees were the super religious, the Herodians were the super secularists. They were loyal to Herod the Great. They were loyal to the government. They were loyal to the Herodian dynasty. They were anti-everything that the Pharisees believed and lived out but they had a common enemy. Jesus came, and he came, and he disrupted the religious systems and the political systems, and these Pharisees were okay with joining this political system if it protects their status. And so we see the beginnings of what eventually will be revealed at the end of the gospel, where Jesus is crucified. Because... He needed to have a religious infraction and a political infraction in order to be crucified. So we get to the end of the Gospels, and they think they've won. Ah, but the, the grave cannot restrain him. And as he stands in victory, since curse is lost on me, but they're not concerned about that. So here's my question for you. Who do you relate to in the story? Uh, If you're anything like me, you might be saying, I'm so glad I would not respond like the Pharisees. I'm so glad that I don't struggle with self-righteousness. I'm so glad that whenever I do something, I'm right and I'm clear. I'm so glad that when I hit that tweet, I'm sure. I'm so glad that when I read that blog, I'm clear. I'm so glad that I don't have any problems with how I view God. But I want to encourage you, be careful when you think you have your heart figured out. Jeremiah 17 tells us it's very deceitful. And we need the Lord's help to come back to the music. We do this so that we don't just focus on the outside of our lives and the behaviors of our lives. We do this so that we can really also and more so focus on the inside. Some years ago, I was driving in the car with my wife. And, uh, as we were driving, she, she suddenly said to me, uh, why is your windshield so dirty? And I said, what are you talking about? My windshield is fine. She said, no, your windshield is dirty. It looks foggy. And I'm like, it looks fine to me. I can see just fine. I'm we're driving down the highway. She said, mm, no, when's the last time you cleaned your windshield? I said, okay, well, I, I'll, I'll clean. Clean my windshield, so I so I turn on the wipers and, and clean the windshield, and I turn on a little bit of fluid and splash the windshield and wipe it off and, and get done. So I said, "See, this. Is, that, is that is that all right?" She said, "No, it still looks real dirty." Huh? I, I don't know, I can't see. She said, How can you even see out of this windshield? She's making a whole big thing out of this. I'm like, I, I don't know. I've been driving this all this time. It looks fine to me. And so she she takes her hand and she she wipes through the the windshield and like a a cloud came off under her hand, I mean, she keeps wiping and it was like my windshield turned to HD. I couldn't believe that my windshield was so dirty. And I had assumed that because I was cleaning the outside of the windshield, that my windshield was clean and I could see out of it clearly. Not realizing that you got to clean the inside too. We need to be careful as we live this Christian life that we don't get deceived into settling for just cleaning the outside. Rules won't cure sin. We need heart change. But the good news is that when we offer our hearts to the Lord, he takes and seals it. And he brings us back to the music of the gospel. May it be so for us this day and always. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So Lord, we confess that we are so drawn by the concrete with good intentions trying to make rules to govern ourselves and to govern others. And Lord, our our hearts are tempted to wander. They deceive us into thinking that we are clear in our righteousness. And Lord, you are grieved. And yet, Lord, you don't give up on us. You continue to call out to us. You continue to draw us. You continue to help us to follow the beat of your gospel. Lord, would you help us to confess where we fall short? So we will turn back to you, hug your word, hug your gospel, and that it would infiltrate our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit sebts.edu.